Welcome to the Keys of the Kingdom with Brother Gregory of His Holy Church. Well, welcome to Keys of the Kingdom. I'm Brother Gregory, and we're going to talk again about the Kingdom of God. We'll look at a number of different things. Uh, specifically, I pulled up an article that, uh, actually I stumbled upon an article that I wrote some time ago, uh, about, uh, young people fleeing religion. And, uh, it's, it was, the article came out after reading a article by, uh, Joan Chips, who is a Huffington Post author. And, uh, Probably that's about all you need to say is that she is, <laughs> you know, one of the, one of the reporters for Huffington Post. But anyway, she says in the article, and she's she's dependent upon uh, someone by the name of uh, Jean Twinge for some of the material that she put into the article. But she says uh, teens are fleeing religion like never before. Massive new study exposes religion's decline. Well, it was the decline of people in what's posing as religion today. And that's, you know, when you read these things, if you, if you don't have a certain amount of knowledge and understanding of, you know, words, history, uh, concepts, uh, precepts, uh, and when I say history, I'm talking about the history of mankind, you know, what moves people from one generation to the next and one age to the next, you're you're going to misunderstand what is actually being said. You know, we all see these uh, people who go out on the street and they ask people questions uh, on the beach or uh, at universities or out in front of the Lincoln Memorial. I saw that one from... Um, uh, Prager U, the young Will goes out and he's asking people who's the first president of the United States and people are unable to answer. And they're, you know, they're saying things like George Bush, uh, like, did you even hear the question? You know, you're wondering. <laughs> these are, these are grown adults, have jobs, work in the world. Some of them, one young girl was a, uh, political science major. And she was not answering very basic, simple questions uh, about American history. And, you know, I have a problem with the way that history was being taught even when I was young. I was actually, when I was going to school, it was actually a major part of the transition of uh, what people learned in school. And uh, I went to private schools and I went to seminaries uh I was in St. Joseph's College back in 1962, so that gives you kind of the time frame that uh, we're talking about. I was pretty young. I was the youngest person in our class. Uh, but uh, the fact is, is that if people don't know history, if they don't know the history of words even, you know, what a word meant 100 years ago or 200 years ago, when they hear people talk, their minds are going to be carried in a particular direction. The, the the new information or lack of information is going to carry them like currents in a river down a particular way of thinking. And of course, repentance, and I'll come back to this several times, repentance is thinking a different way. That's what it means. It doesn't mean you're sorry. 
It doesn't mean you uh, are changing your religion or something. It means you're thinking a different way. And so people are actually led to think a certain way by their lack of knowledge and by the wordsmiths who write these articles. Like, massive new study exposes religion's decline. Does the word massive have to do with religion's decline or the study? Well, of course, in the sentence it has to do with the study, but including the word massive new study in with the statement exposes religion's decline, you think religion is in decline in a massive sort of way because of the association, the way the brain thinks. We did a whole show on on the fact that you, you people have studied lots of different people's brains and they find out that the category of certain types of words are recorded in the same locations in multiple different people's brains. So that when you say these words, it causes a reaction in a certain part of your brain. So literally, where a word is recorded inside your brain is, well, I wouldn't want to say it's universal because the study was only certain people from a certain strata they didn't go to a lot of different nations and use the other languages. They're sticking to one language and, and doing the study. But it was a remarkable similarity of the mapping of where those words are actually stored in your brain. Now, how is that possible? That a, an infant, you can tell them the meaning of a word, but why are they storing the information about that word and words associated with that word in the same place as their parents in their brain. What what makes it be stored there? Why wouldn't it be stored in a variety of different places in your brain? So it's kind of an amazing study in itself. But the reality is is that we there you know, people are always looking for the oneness or, you know, that uh, universal uh, cosmic uh, connection between us all. Well, it's there. Exactly in what form and exactly what extent. Well, that's that's kind of what life is all about. To find out how we are all one. And there, But there are differences. So where do those differences come from? And what is is that where we get into the realm of spirit? That if you are entertaining the Spirit of Christ in your life, is that going to help map out the way you think? If you're entertaining other spirits, you know, like we see in the Bible talking about people who are actually possessed by a spirit, a demon. And, uh, you know, a lot of people are going to say, well, that's not true. It's just psychology, etc., etc. Well, is there an involvement of spirit that helps map out the way in which people think and way in which they store words in their minds? Because for some reason or other, there is this uniformity from one person to the, the next. And where are the differences? And is repentance, this thinking a different way, does that come about because you begin to entertain a different spirit? 
than you were entertaining before. I mean, if you if you go amongst Democrats and Republicans, are we seeing different spirits in those people? Uh, left, uh, let's get out of Democrat and Republican. Let's just deal with left and right. And then the far left and the far right. And I, I've joked often, you know, you see the people on the far left really have a great deal in common with the people on the far right. Ideologically, they think they're completely different, but the spirit is often very similar. And I said that that's proof that we do live on a round planet because, you know, if you go far enough to the left, you find yourself on the right. And the reality is somebody was talking to me yesterday about we see this pendulum in society where everything was kind of swinging to the left. And then now there's going to be this back, you know, where it swings back to the right. And you see this kind of pulsing in history. But the reality is, is it may not be so much the swing of the p- pendulum, but the distance it's swinging. If we swing to the far left and then to the far right, that's where you, you end up with things like holocausts. But anyway, uh, I'll explain that maybe later if we have enough time. But Joan is uh, talking about this massive new study. Well, the study is from this Gene Twinge who is a psychology professor at San Diego State. And you can find out a lot more about her. And she's just a psychology professor who's making certain observations that teens are fleeing religious institutions like never before. So what's a religious institution? I added the word religious institution. Of course, Jean uses such words as well. But Ship left out the word institution and just said fleeing religion. Well, then we need to go and set Joan down and say, Joan, what do you think religion is? What What's your definition of religion? You say fleeing religion. The reality is these people are not fleeing religion. They're just fleeing a certain type of religion and a certain type of religious institution. And they're not really fleeing. They're just abandoning it. Uh, certain types of religious institution. Well, Twinge says that this is due to Cultural change after examining surveys concluded over 48 years to get the opinion of 11.2 million adolescents between the ages of 13 and 18. So this is 48 years of teenagers. Are the teenagers the same 50 years ago as they are today? Uh, have they been altered? I mean, all these electronic devices and the media and and what they're learning in school. Back 48 years ago, they were still teaching history in school. Today, they're not. Uh, today, they're teaching lots of different subjects in lots of different ways than they were 48 years ago. And like I said, I was, well, I wasn't going to school so much 48 years ago. Uh, I had pretty much left school, but there was this transition that was taking place in schools all over the United States and even all over the world. Uh, where, uh, and, and we've written about that and done shows about that. Uh, you know, uh, our uh, schools as tools articles you can go and read and uh, listen to the audios that there has been a concentrated effort to use schools 
to change the way in which people think. And this began, you know, over a hundred years ago in the United States with Ernest. I mean, there were people actually planning to do it. And, and that would be expected. I mean, you don't have to call it a conspiracy theory. People who think they know what's best for everybody would obviously try to change the way everybody thinks for their own purposes. Or maybe their purposes are good. Maybe their purposes are bad. But they're going to try to change the way people think. I'm talking to you right now. I would like to change the way you think. But I'm not going to do it in a sneaky way. I'm not going to do it in a uh, covert way. I'm just going to tell you. You ought to think differently. And there is a different way to think. And one way you think will alter your mind. You know, that's one of the things where they talk about in the New Covenant, that I shall write upon your hearts and upon your minds. And that's, that is the covenant. In other words, he's going to help program your mind so that you put the words in this pattern, the ideas in this pattern, and you're going to come up with a different conclusion. In order to program your mind... In this better way, he has to program your heart in a better way. Well, God requires that you choose. He's not going to do this, you know, with uh, microwave towers or, you know, uh, you know, G5 signals and uh, harmonics or, uh, or through torture and these things. You have to voluntarily choose to let God write upon your heart and upon your mind. And that's a process. And uh, it, one of the elements of that process is what we would call religion. But now I just said the word religion. What did you think? We don't know what Joan Ships thinks. Actually, you, if you read enough of her articles, you can actually get what she thinks of religion. But uh, what did you think when I said the word religion? And, of course, we've done articles on that. Religion, the definition over the years, has changed. It used to be the pious performance of your duty to God and your fellow man. And now it's what you think about a supreme being. You know, you look it up in the dictionary. You Google it. That's what you're going to get as a definition. And so, is that what Joan means when she says fleeing religion? I think she actually means Fleeing religious institutions. Well, then, then the question comes up: Are these really religious institutions that they are fleeing? Because are those institutions helping you perform your duty to God and your fellow man, or just telling you what to think about a supreme being? Because those are two different definitions of religion. Over a period of just a few generations, the definition of religion changed. So what what makes an institution a religious institution? And in order to answer that, we have to ask, what do you mean by religion? So this is one of the things that, you know, I find very hopeful is that um, people worldwide, American people certainly, but worldwide, are looking more and more towards these long interchanges with people that are willing to discuss complicated issues, uh, people who have looked into things and 
are willing to sit down for an hour, hour and a half. Sometimes, I mean, some of these podcasts where they have guests on can be four hours and people listen to them. And they, they, sometimes they listen intently. Sometimes they end up being a show, uh, more interesting the show than really getting to the truth. But sometimes when you get the right combination of people, people find them fascinating because they are starved for real input, real conversations. Because when you look out in the world and you go to the restaurant and you go out with your friends, you don't have real conversations. <laughs> you have have shallow conversations with people everywhere. Uh, you're not supposed to talk about anything important. You know, religion, politics. Keep your, you know, your comments to the weather. And now with global warming, weather's not even safe anymore. So, you know, so people are starved for meaningful conversations. And they're willing to sit and listen to other people have those meaningful conversations, which in itself is not really healthy. By by itself, it's not really healthy. It's fine to some degree. But you need to have, you know, after you go to one of these, uh, you know, places or listen to some group or, or a group of people or a panel that have a really meaningful conversation you need to go out with your friends and have a meaningful conversation about what you all think you heard. <laughs> so, but people are starved for meaning, for something of value. Now, some people aren't starved for that because they really don't want any meaning. Uh, they they want to live shallow lives, but those who don't, they find themselves in a wasteland. And uh, you know, my daughter, she was you know reading. You know, complex books when she was very young. She was a very slow reader, very, but she was very interested in a variety of different things. But then she had children and then of course she's surrounded by her children and she's helping with her husband's business. And she said that after a while she was getting starved for, you know, conversations with somebody who was more than five years old. <laughs> because, uh, you know, you, it limits your world to some degree. So they have to get out and talk with other people and interact with other people. And she has. But uh, the reality in society today, there's not a lot of people to talk with. If if Will is out there, uh, and there was a lot of different guys who do this and are asking people just basic questions. You know, he asked one girl once uh, if she believed in socialism. And she said, yeah. Uh, it depends, you know, I mean, like, we're socializing right now. I think that's great. And that's that was her, why she believed in socialism. She doesn't even, she hadn't got a clue what socialism is. <laughs> but uh, anyway, the, and I always wonder when I see these people doing, did you have, is this actually a a cut strata of the people that you interviewed, or are you just picking the dumbest answers you got? Because, you know, you show 10 people and you get nothing but dumb answers. I'm thinking, like, did you did you have to talk to 100 people in order to get all these dumb answers? Or did you only talk to 20 to get 10 dumb answers? I mean, like, so what, what are you really running into? And I've actually had some interest in going out and doing that myself. But the 
not a lot of people around and it takes several people and it takes a lot of time. But uh I do talk to a lot of people. I don't I don't put it on video, but I talk to a lot of people and I'm surprised at how much people don't know. And occasionally I'm pleasantly surprised at how much people want to know. But unfortunately, I'm also disappointed with the amount of people that you tell something to that they didn't know that contradicts what they want to believe is true. And they don't like it. They don't want to hear the truth. They can't handle the truth. So anyway, in this article that I wrote, uh, it goes on to say uh, it was concluded that the adolescents pray less, approve of religious organizations left, which is back to that religious institutions, and think religion is less important with far more believing religion is not important at all. Uh, far more than what? Is she saying the majority think that religion is not important at all? And, and when they say not important at all, are they talking about the institution? Their relationship with God is still important, but their relationship with the institution is wavering. So what what exactly is she saying? Twinge uh, wrote the book uh, Generation Me, describes young adults today as disengaged, narcissistic, distrustful, and anxious. Why are they anxious? What are they nervous about? What what? Uh, because they're they're missing something, and one of the things I think they're missing is that meaning, you know, uh, that comes not only from meaningful conversations, you know, where you discuss things, but when you see the word conversations in the Bible, Paul's conversation, he's actually talking about the administration of public affairs. He's actually talking about his walk in life, not just you know talking but his walk, what he's actually doing. And so I think people are missing a meaningful conversation in life with one another, that the, the, that our relationships are often extremely shallow. Yeah, the, that was another article I read this week, that, at least in part, where it was talking about how uh, young people dating uh, people are they, they are so promiscuous, so ready to have intimate relationships with people that they relatively don't know, and uh, you know it always reminds me of um, you know one of these older Emily Bronson books. The idea was that the 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 man who was unmarried at the time would not let somebody take care of plans for a gathering for him but himself alone until he had a wife he wouldn't let any other person do it because it was a part of that being faithful to the wife to be and people don't realize that well i'm not married so i can play around well you're cheating on your wife to be or your husband to be when you're doing so anyway we'll be right back to keys of the kingdom so what is what how do you build a relationship with each other with friends with community with with how how do you build a religious relationship what does a religious relationship look like how 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 does that operate and what are they really fleeing and are they fleeing to something or fleeing from the counterfeit religion that has come about 
in well actually I think it was coming about immediately after Christ the counterfeit religion was growing up uh we see it popping up with greater and greater influence you know over the centuries but now we've gone so far away from meaningful relationships that uh so that our relationships are shallow they're, they're not in-depth relationships and you know like uh, remaining uh, celibate until you're married, yeah, and they were handing out people were getting these pledge rings, you know, that they were going to wait until they were married, and and, they, and somebody actually got kids to turn those rings in, you know, and you know who took the pledge and they're turning them in, and then they melted it down and made some sort of work of art with it or something, you know, and. And they consider that a victory because they think it was bad that kids were waiting. Young people were waiting. And the reality is that that uh, young people, the idea that you can go and play at these intimate relationships is robbing you of having a truly... in. It makes all relationships shallow. And because the purpose of not waiting is to satisfy yourself is certainly not going to satisfy the your partner it's to satisfy yourself and this is where the narcissism comes in that's what narcissism you know it's about you and then of course because you know marriage is is a relationship of trust and that's something we're going to talk a little bit more about trust i mean the to be troth betrothed the troth was a trust entering into the relationship of man and woman who where the woman is going to produce this child in the matrix of the family and that child will be the next generation all that process requires a certain amount of trust and so that's why they they talked about being betrothed the, the word troth there comes from the word that we know today as trust and you're trusting one another. The woman is is going to bear this child, trusting that the man will be there and help her raise it. So all that process alters the way we think about things. And if you are promiscuous before marriage, you're going to alter the way you think about marriage. It's taking you down a particular way of thinking. It's your life, that becomes a part of your life's conversation. So what what is religion? Religion, we, we think of religion, you know, today, like I say, they've reduced the definition to what you think about God. But if you take it back just a little ways, religion had to do with teaching moral character, moral precepts, moral guidelines. You know, like the Ten Commandments, that's considered religious. That's not actually the meaning of the word religion, but we associate the Ten Commandments with religion. Ten Commandments certainly has something to do with values. It has a lot more to do with values than most people realize uh, because they don't really understand the Ten Commandments. Uh, They understand what people say the Ten Commandments mean, but they're actually, they're, they're a lot more to do with, you know, moral character, moral values than people realize. I mean, the Sabbath doesn't have anything to do with the day of a week. Most people don't 
realize that and they don't want to realize that they want to believe that oh because we celebrate saturday as the sabbath that we're more righteous than those people who only celebrate sunday this is taking you down that narcissistic road where it's all about you and it's actually causing you to disengage from the real purpose of sabbath which is about staying out of debt Working first and then enjoying the fruits of your labor. That's what the Sabbath is about. Work six days and then take your earned rest. <laughs> so, and, and that's a very simple little concept, but that is so foreign to most people who write about the Sabbath. They don't get that. They don't realize. I mean, what, which of the Ten Commandments is about debt? We know debt is bondage, so which one of the Ten Commandments is about debt? Well, it's the Sabbath. So what, what's uh, thou shalt make no covenants about? What, what, and how do you make covenants with other gods when there's only one God? You know, so people don't understand the Ten Commandments, and we've written about that, and we have audios up about that, and you can go study that. But right now, let's get back to the relationships that we have with each other and with what we think is religion and the institutions of religion. America has never been more socialistic as it is today. We have steadily been becoming more and more socialized in America over the, the last hundred years especially. You know, Federal Reserve notes. Uh, I mean, there were bank notes around for for hundreds of years. There were bank notes back around in the American Revolution. Uh, we actually did create a, a, a U.S. bank, a national bank, and then we had certain presidents who got rid of the national bank and warned us about, I mean, Jefferson warned us and, and Jackson warned us and lots of people warned us about a national bank. And But then we ended up creating this Federal Reserve Bank, which is not really federal, and it began to issue notes Instead of the individual banks, it was issuing these other notes that we call Federal Reserve notes. And they have altered and been changed over the years. And uh, that's another whole history in itself. But the point is, is that money is a socialist form of money. It wasn't fiat script at first, but it's pretty much fiat script today. And uh, And so it's not... Once you started going pervasively to a note currency, especially an interest-bearing note currency, you were no longer engaged in capitalism. You were engaged in at least one of the planks of socialism, where the the means of production you don't even get to have. You get to have a note for the means of production. <laughs> so that's not capitalism. That's because you don't have any capital. You have dead notes. So you've already removed away from capitalism and now you're in socialism. That's what's so amazing. People will say things like, capitalism, how's that working out for you? Well, I don't know. Uh, capitalism was dead in this country before I was even born and I'm pretty old. So, yeah, we, we call it capitalism, but it's not really capitalism. Uh, public schools is a socialist uh, thing. Social Security is a socialist program. Medicare, Medicaid, those are all socialist programs. All of our economic woes today are stems back to these socialist 
plans and policies and programs that have been instituted in the country for over a 100 years. Not that capitalism is a solution. Capitalism is just an economic, you know, it's an economic process. As capitalism is the means of production or the hands of individuals. If you go back to when they uh, allowed corporations to get the status of a person, of an individual person, and that, that does not die. It lives from generation to generation. And we have articles on that. And, you know, what the golem is, uh, the, the legend of the golem, that's a corporation. Once we gave it person status, we're saying that the golem is a living creature and therefore has the same rights as uh, as as a man. Well, that that creates a problem. That's straying away from capitalism, which means the capitalism means the means of production are in the hands of the individual man, and that man can come together in a corporation, but the corporation itself does not have the status of a man. It has the status of a group of men, and they they carry the responsibility of that corporation. And that's the way it should be, but that isn't the way it is anymore. And so, anyway, all these things change the way in which society operates, and they change the way in which you think. They change the way in which you organize thought and organize your perception of society. So anyway, uh, so we've moved to this socialist nation. Uh, the predominant, uh, I, I mentioned in this article, the predominant source of educating uh, people before the 1900s were private schools and home schools. And even the public schools that were around were extremely locally controlled. I mean, the, people talk about Jefferson wanted to create a public school system and introduced a bill in Virginia. And we talked about this a number of weeks ago. Yeah, that, that's not a public school like you think of public school. What he was suggesting is one-room schoolhouses would be built in every ward. And he actually refers to the wards as individual republics. The wards are sections within a county. They are, you know, there are numerous wards within a county. And he wanted one one-room schoolhouse built within walking distance of everybody who lived in a given ward. So how are they going to uh, build this? Were they going to tax everybody on their land and their labor and then those taxes would be put into a common fund and then they would hire some contractors to build the schools? No. He just said, have the militias build the school. You know, it's only a one-room schoolhouse. They didn't have plumbing. So <laughs> they were going to, somebody's going to dig an outhouse out back you know, I mean, we have, a, I've worked on a one-room schoolhouse out of here in this community numerous times. It sits idle, but uh, until, I don't remember when that, a few years ago, they tore down the old outhouse that was there. Uh, it actually may have burned up. There was a fire that came near there at one time. And then we have bears clawing through the back wall and different things. But uh, the reality was that was built by the local people. And the the teacher was housed with one of the local families. And they had a great deal of control over that public school. That's not what you have today. And that's not what you have today is not. Jefferson would be appalled at what you have today. Shocked. But people said, where would we be without our public school system? Well, you might be free still. Uh, you certainly could be just as well educated. Maybe even better educated. We know that homeschoolers are better educated than people who go to public school. 
And basically, homeschooling was what it was all about. Now, what uh, the schools were is sometimes people who might be inadequate to teach their kids at home. Books were expensive. They could go to a school and share those resources. But you could do the same thing with homeschooling clubs today and probably get a better education. But what it requires to make that really work well is that homeschoolers come together and work together for the betterment of all. And a secondary thing begins to happen to your mind when you do that. That conversation now is not just a narcissistic walk about you and your family. It is now a walk that can create trust between you and other families because you're all working together for a common goal. So anyway, I I pointed out that Twinge also referred to this um, me generation as the entitlement generation. And the reality is when you're taking back your responsibility of things like education, health, taking care of your parents, taking care of one another, taking care of your community, this changes. There's no room for narcissism in such a society. Religion as taught by Christ was exactly that. The the religion that Christ talked about, he commanded that the people sit down in the tens, hundreds, and thousands. That And in sitting down together in those tens, hundreds, and thousands, they were able to share what they had and what they had not only was enough, but it created a surplus. What's happened is that you have not done that and you sat down with men who exercise authority and they don't have enough. They have put you into debt because you have desired benefits at the expense of your neighbor. And through that covetous practices, you've been made merchandise. And so your relationship now with your government is contractual. Now, the reason that's come about is because you had already abandoned pure religion over a generation ago. And you've held up something as if it was religion in these religious institutions, which is to try to get somebody to think about God like Martin Luther, or think about God like the Baptists, or think about God like the Methodists, or think about God like the Catholics, or the Jehovah Witness, or the Seventh-day Adventists. And you've created all these religions that will tell you and dictate to you what you are to think about God, and they call that religion. But again, religion 200 years ago was defined as a pious performance of a duty to God and your fellow man. And of course, what's your duty to God? Your your duty to God is to love your neighbor as yourself. To seek the righteousness of God in your relationships with your neighbor. See, somebody who tells you that it's okay to be promiscuous before you're married is saying it's okay to cheat on your wife, to cheat on your husband before you meet him. Once you meet him, then you can't cheat on him anymore. Well, that's that's shallow. That's not a very in-depth relationship. Well, let's expand that relationship out to your neighbor, to your community. You see, you don't have, 
you know, if you, if you go to a community meeting and there's lots of argument and nobody gets anything done, then chances are you don't really have an in-depth relationship. Certainly not a trust relationship with your community. Somebody wrote the other day that, what was it, that he said that, uh, somebody should elect a goat to the city council. Because then you would have more meaningful conversations and relationships with your your city council, which is evidently he didn't think well of the people. And I'm not sure exactly why he said that. And uh, but anyway, the the point is is that he, he that's not constructive. It's a pretty shallow approach to, <laughs> to his local community. Uh, the, the reality is, it's going to be hard. It's going to be a struggle to have in-depth conversations with your local communities and with people in your local com- communities because most people don't have the capacity for it. They don't have the background education. They don't know what words like religion, republic, democracy, they don't know what they mean. They don't realize how narcissistic they themselves are, how lacking in trust they are. You know, I've done a number of different uh, talks, and we have articles on trust. And one of the things that I thought was amazing and might help people understand the idea of trust, trust in a community, is that when you mail a letter, you're creating a trust. Actually, when you write a check, you're creating currency. Because it's not very extensive currency, because most people won't pass it around from individual to individual. But it can... You know, it used to be more often that, you know, you'd give a check to somebody and they could endorse it over to somebody else and then they, they would take it to their bank and then their bank would take it to the original bank and get the money back. And and so for a while that check was operating as if you printed your own money by signing that check. And it's a process. And it's also a note. Uh, you know, because that's what if you look at it. It's got all the elements of a note. It's got it's dated. It's it has an amount and it has an authorizing signature. But it's you've created a note, and it it involves debt and it involves trust. But when you mail a letter, you're actually creating a trust, and on the envelope is the terms of the trust. You know. I want this letter to go to this place. If you can't get it to this place, take it back to this place. Return address up here in the corner. And that's that's a trust. You've been, and you actually get you purchase a stamp, you put the stamp on it and they stamp the when they stamp the stamp, they accept the terms of the trust. They talk about canceling the stamp. Well, it, you can't use it again, but they by doing that, they have create you have created a trust. The same as if you put a gold ring on your wife's finger, you're creating a trust. When they stamp and she accepts that ring, you know, and that's what when she gets mad at you, hopefully just an engagement ring, she'll maybe pull it off and throw it at you, and uh, that's the end of the trust. She's canceling the trust. <laughs> but in Mailing a letter, you've created a trust. That's a form of trust. When you give money to a minister, that's a form of trust. So how you do all that will make a difference in the nature of the trust. So go back to the relationship of husband and wife or someone you meet and you want to get married. 
that you're you're creating trust by the way in which you walk in that relationship. Okay, go back to religion and religious institutions. If religious institutions, by definition, is an institution that helps you in the performance of your pious duty to God and your fellow man, then that's going to create a different relationship than a church that's simply going to entertain you, tickle your ears, and tell you what to think about God. That's a different religious institution. So the people that are leaving the religious institutions this Ships is talking about, Joan Ships is talking about, they're leaving a religious institution that doesn't actually help you perform your pious duty to God and your fellow man. Now, those who listen on a regular basis hear me quote, you know, a minister who said, socialism is the religion you get when you lose your religion. And, of course, all these people, I shouldn't say all, but generally speaking, most all of these people who are not going to churches anymore, fleeing religious institutions, religious organizations, are fleeing in the direction of public religion. Because the public says you have a duty to take care of the old people, take care of the needy, to pay into welfare, to, you know, to pay your taxes. And those taxes supposedly go to pay for, you know, Social Security for the elderly and and the disabled and and to pay for the welfare of the people and even pay for the protection of the country from foreign invasion and what have you. That's another religion. It's just called public religion. And you have faith in those public institutions that they will be there and take care of you. You know, if you get married and and you die and you leave a wife and three children, who will care for that widow of yours, that widow you left behind, and those orphan children that you left behind? Not the church. The church isn't going to care for them. It will be the state. And they will do so through what you would call public religion. You should call public religion. The social welfare programs of the government are your religion. Because that's the religion you have when you have no religion. Socialism is the religion you have when you have no religion. So the churches, more than 50 years ago, more I would say even 100 years ago, they had already started abandoning the purpose of religion, which was the pious performance of your duty to God and your fellow man. They were already abandoning that. It was still around 100 years ago. That would be year 1919. But it was waning. Religions were arguing over theological points of view, you know. I mean, just look at your tenets of faith. You gotta believe that Jesus is the Son of God, that it was a virgin birth. I don't know. What are your basic tenets? And, you know, if you're Seventh day Adventist, you gotta believe in the Sabbath and, and take the Sabbath off and, and all these other things. But what does that have to do with the widows and orphans? 
Because that's what religion, the only place that pure religion, the only place in the Bible where they talk about religion in a good sense is pure religion. And pure religion is how you visit, how you take care of the widows and orphans of your society. And it's only pure if it's unspotted by the world. And again, if you don't know the meaning of words like world there, I mean, which world are we talking? Not spotted by Wayne's world? Not spotted by Disney World, not spotted by the planet. You know, what, what world, the, the word they're using there means constitutional order or system of government. In other words, you're taking care of the widows and orphans and needy of your society through faith, hope, and charity. Not to force fear, violence, covetous practices, compelled offerings. You're not using those. If you're not doing that, in your church, that's not pure religion. That church is not practicing pure religion. If your church tells you to go to men who exercise authority to take care of one another, that's not, that church is not preaching pure religion. It's preaching you to go to men who call themselves benefactors but exercise authority. Jesus said it was not to be that way with you. Your pastor is saying, yeah, it can be that way with you. It's okay. Why is it okay? It wasn't okay with Jesus. It's okay with your pastor, but your pastor's not really working for Jesus, is he? So that's the churches these young people are fleeing. They're not fleeing religion. They're fleeing fake religion, false religion, counterfeit religion, in exchange for public religion. The government will not piously, well actually piously. If you look at the word pious, pious has to do the original definition of the word pious. And this is what I mean. If you you lack these knowledge, I'll wait till the, the next half of the program and I'll tell you, what do you think? You can all go and Google the word pious. Find out the origins of the word pious. And then when we come back to Keys of the Kingdom, maybe you... Because I think it's important you do some looking, too. I'm not just going to hand everything to you. But we're going to get into a number of things in the second half. And we'll be right back. Welcome back to Keys of the Kingdom. So, did everybody look up the word pious? <laughs> we were on the break. Uh, you know... If you if you went and looked up, well, you know, I was trying to quote to you the definition of the word religion, which was real piety in practice. Uh, that's actually the part of the, the beginning of that definition is real piety in practice. That's what religion is. Consisting in the performance of all known duties to God and our fellow man. Well, of course, God says, love thy neighbor as thyself. So that's that's a duty to your fellow man, to tend to the weightier matters. You know, if, if somebody's beating up your neighbor, you should come to his aid. If somebody's robbing your neighbor, you should come to his aid. If if your neighbor is headed for a cliff, you know, in his car, and he's waving to you as you go by, you should be waving in a way to try to tell him, hey, stop, you're headed for a cliff. You have a duty to do that. You have a duty to make sure that he doesn't fall in the pit. You don't, you don't have to, you know, shoot his tires out necessarily, but you need to do what you can in a pious performance in that practice of caring about your neighbor as much as you care about yourself. 
And that care sometimes will require some sacrifice on your part. But that is a matter of choice. It's not real love unless it's done as a matter of free will choice. But anyway, so that real piety in practice, what does this word pious, piety, have to do with? Well, if you looked it up, you know, I just Googled it uh, real quick and it said uh, devoutly religious. But then what's religious? <laughs> religion is the taking, pure religion is taking care of the uh, widows and orphans. Uh, religion must be the taking care of the widows and orphans and it's pure if it's unspotted by the constitutional orders and systems of governments of the world who do it by force. Because you have to do it by faith, hope, and charity if you're going to be following Christ. If you're if you're looking to men who exercise authority to force your neighbor to contribute to your welfare at the point of a gun or a sword or what have you, then you're living by the sword. And you're not a Christian. You're not following Christ. You're not doing what he said. You're not doing what Moses said. You may be doing what you want, what you were told was okay, but you're not doing what Christ taught, so you're not really following Christ, so you're not really a Christian. You can believe that he's God. You can believe that, you know, that he was born of a virgin. I assume, you know, Satan believes those things, but he doesn't do what God wants. He still, so, that, just because you believe those things, that doesn't make you a Christian. And Christ said that. Not those who say, Lord, Lord, but those who do it the will of the Father. So are you doing the will of the Father? Because Christ said, call no man on earth Father, because our Father art in heaven. And if you go to the archaic definition of dutiful or loyal, it means being dutiful or loyal to your father and your mother. That's that's what it means. It actually, you know, if you go back to the original word in the Latin, it has to do with being dutiful. And specifically to the father. Because, I mean, that's the one person you should obey is your natural father. And then, of course, beyond that, you should obey your father in heaven. So the idea of uh, the state being your father... He's going to take care of you. He's going to provide for you. And you're going to have to tithe to him. And he will provide for you all those entitlements that they were talking about. And if you're very narcissistic, you may think that that's a good idea. But you don't realize that it will also bring you under tyranny. And, you know, it may bring you under a lot of other problems as well. Over time, religion was redefined as what you think about a supreme being, I write in the article. But uh, the prophets of religions like Judaism and Christianity said that we were to love our neighbor as ourselves, which means we would not want to covet our neighbor's goods or force our neighbors to contribute to our welfare. But we would hope that we would be there for us. But the... That's living by faith, hope, and charity. You you are charitable for them, and you hope that they will be charitable for you. That is not what people are doing today. They're not following Judaic Christian values. They're following the values of Nimrod. You know, and, and Cain, 
and Pharaoh and Caesar. And they have contracted so that they could get those entitlements. They've abandoned the ways of Christianity. They call what they're doing Christianity, but it's actually works of iniquity. Early Christian, Christians formed a, a living network through these tens, hundreds, and thousands, which was very common in those days. Even the synagogues back then in those days were still ten families. And they were linked together in tens, hundreds, and thousands all the way back to the temple. You know, where the minister of, you know, the rabbi of a synagogue would get together with other rabbis and they would do this tens, hundreds, and thousands things all the way back to the temple. But if you got the baptism of Jesus Christ, you were kicked out of your synagogue and disconnected from the temple. But Jesus had already begun to teach the people how to sit down in the tens, hundreds, and thousands and provide loaves and fishes for them through that sitting down in that pattern with love of neighbor. And they found that they would actually have a surplus in that process. And when they were kicked out of the synagogues of Judea, they they came out willingly because they had this other system of religion, the pious performance of their duty to God and their fellow man, already in place. A performance of a duty through love, through charity, instead of through force. In order to do that, they had to change their thinking. In reality, they had to allow their thinking to be changed. And they developed trust amongst each other. So that when the persecutions came, they were able to help one another. When they had to flee Jerusalem, they had a place to go. When they were kicked out of Rome, 14,000 families kicked out of Rome. They had to leave. They had a place to go. Fortunately, they had people making tents so that they could find a new life in a new place, which was really going to be important for Christianity to survive. Some stayed back in Rome who were not Jews, but were Romans. And then we see Paul writing those Roman Christians who are doing what Christ said, taking care of one another in the tens, hundreds, and thousands. They weren't just going to church to sing and to praise and to say words and to think particular theologies and doctrines, they were going to church to actually care for one another because they couldn't go get the free bread of Rome because that was another father. And then when they were persecuted, and you can see in our articles on the Christian conflict, they were persecuted because they would not join the temple systems of social welfare. But they were able to leave the system. They were opting out of the systems of social welfare through the temples and opting into a system of social welfare through Christ. And they became very efficient at it. They were not looking to the benefactors to exercise authority. They were not praying to the fathers of the earth. Again, for those of you who are not brought up to speed, the fathers of the earth were the Senate who were called conscripti patri, conscripted fathers, and the emperor who was called our father who art in Rome, Patronus. And they weren't praying to them for their daily bread because they knew that was covetous 
And it was not only covetous, but it was desiring men who exercised authority one over the other to provide you with benefits. And they, Christians would not do that. They do it today, but they're not real Christians. They're fake Christians. The ones leaving those religions, some of them might be looking for pure religion. Some of them are content to have socialism as their religion. And you, you look out there at the socialists and you, a lot of them are very angry, anxious people, even violent people. Not all of them, but many of them are. Some are just misguided. You know, I, you know, Brett and Eric Weinstein, they're both socialists. You know, they, they originally were Jewish. Uh, I don't know. I guess they're Jewish by descent, but I don't know that they go to, a local synagogue, if they fall on hard times, which both of them, I guess, are fairly well off. One of them lives in Portland. I'm not sure where the other one lives. I think he actually, one of the places he works, he works for PayPal um, in, you know, in another or some company that's associated with PayPal investments or something. And, uh, but he was saying at one time that uh, what we really should do is fund you know, basically fund the most charitable and wisest people in in our community to take care of the needs of, you know, give them a slush fund and allow them to take care of the needs of the people in society. Well, I absolutely agree. That's that's the way Christ was organized. That's the way the early church was organized. That's the way Moses organized it. They were called the Levites in the days of Moses, and they were called ministers, bondservants, in the case of the early church. And the people gave to the minister that they thought was the best at the pious performance of his duty to God and his fellow man. You know, the care for the widows and orphans and needy of society. The ones that were rightly dividing the bread from house to house. And they funded them. And that's how they took care of the needy. They didn't, they didn't go to the bread of Rome because that was funded by forced offerings. So, you know, Eric, I think it was Eric, uh, yeah, because Brett is the biologist, I think, if I got that right. Uh, Eric is the one who suggested that, and he was right on, but I don't know if he made the connection. That's, that's religion. That's, that's pure religion. You know, but, and I wouldn't be surprised if he didn't know that that's what he was saying, because of the fact that it's been a long time since they used the original definition of religion. Even the word you know, in the Greek, threskia, it's what you do. You know, pious performance of your duty is what you do. And your duty to who? Your fellow man. You know, God doesn't need your money. You know, despite what George Carlin, the comedian, says. Yeah, that And he mocking the modern church. And he said, God can, all powerful, all great, all the, but he can't handle money. He always needs more money. Well, that's not, those aren't real churches. Those are fake churches. They're not, they're not, they're telling you that you're saved because of what you think. While Jesus said, it's not what you think or say. I mean, I actually have seen preachers who say, all you have to do is say these words and you're automatically saved. And they're, they're taking Paul out of context in order to come up with that theology because that's not what Paul said. You have to take them out of context to get away with that. Paul is talking about all kinds of people who have no inheritance in the kingdom and they may have said those same words 
But their walk wasn't the walk of a Christian. Their talk wasn't really the talk of a Christian either. But just because you say something doesn't make it so. You have to be a doer. Because what you do confesses what you say better than what comes out of your mouth. Which has been a controversy all the time in the beginning of the Old Testament and all the way up into the New Testament. Because, I mean, they talk about men being liars who say they are Jews but are really the synagogue of Satan. you you got to remember all the early Christians were Jews. Jews accepted Christ as the king and were eventually called Christians. There were other Jews who denied Christ and said they had no king but Caesar. But they weren't Jews anymore. They were Romans. I mean, they might, their heritage might have been Jewish. Their their bloodline might have been Jewish. But when they said they have no king but Caesar, they're out. They're the lost sheep. They can come back in, which is now coming up on what I also wanted to talk to you about. (laughs) So anyway, we have on on the page, fleeing religion, which you can find it preparing you. Uh, there's lots of live links to all these different articles, you know, articles on what the temples were, how they were being used, uh, why they were considered religious. They were public temples supported by tax dollars. They were also supported by contributions. You you know, when you send in your income tax this year to, to the IRS on April 15th, you can also send along an extra check and donation, too. They will They accept donations. But most of their funding... Well, you know, it's, I wouldn't even say most of their funding. Much of their funding is through taxation. Most of their funding is actually through borrowing money against your future and the future of your children. You know, that's when they raise the debt ceiling. So, that's your religion. You don't want to call it religion, but that's public religion. And, uh, that that's where you you go for your daily ministration. That is not a charitable institution. That is an institution of force. And until John the Baptist, that's the way everybody in the world was taking care of their needy through force. You know, establishing their utopia on earth, their heavenly utopia on earth. They were doing it through force. John the Baptist said, "No, he'd do it through sharing, through charity, through fervent giving." Fervent charity. So that is the distinction. That's what made Christians peculiar. But that's that's not what most people are doing today. And that's not going to be a popular message for most people to hear. About Christians not eating the free bread of Rome. Because they knew that the free bread of Rome was a snare and a trap. Because Paul had told them and David had told them. And Proverbs 23 uh, tells them. That's, Peter tells you that that's a covetous practice and that it will make you merchandise and curse your children. To make the rulers of your government the father of your, uh, and benefactor of your needs is the going in the opposite direction of Christ. And it's going to make you think differently, see things differently. You're going to become entangled again in the yoke of bondage and you will not even realize it. You certainly will not want to admit it. And the free bread you get, that's idolatry at the temples of pagans. Public pagans, public temples, 
But it's not what Christ was about. And that's how Christ set men free. And that's how Moses set men free. Is he taught them how to care for one another during during hard times sometimes. But it's not really hard times yet. As a matter of fact, everybody thinks, you know, things are getting better. I mean, well, I don't know if everybody thinks that. I mean, there are elements. I mean, when we talk about trends and thinking... Over what period of time? You know, Twinge's uh, study was over 48 years. And I'm sure, I don't think she did the whole study, but uh, I mean, dealing with over a million youths asking them these questions. So, religion today has become a myriad of opinions about God, promoted by entertaining homiletics and uh, imaginative hermeneutics. And it's just not what Christ was all about. Christ was in the real world. Christ was dealing with real problems in real societies, in real communities. And Christians were dealing with those fundamental needs of society through faith, hope, and charity, which prepared them for the fall of Rome. So that they thrived during the fall of Rome. They had, they even thrived during the persecutions of Rome. Christian numbers dropped during the persecutions, not just from death, because people would say, I don't want to be a Christian anymore. i just kidding. I just thought I would try that out. You know, it was just kind of an exercise. But, you know, I'm all on your side. <laughs> just so that they didn't get, you know, persecuted. But, uh, and some, we came back. That was a big controversy, whether you let them back or not. But the reality is, is that's, that you don't build much trust by betraying <laughs> your fellow man. So, if you were to sit down in the tens, hundreds, and thousands like Christ commanded and set the table of the Lord by fervent giving to ministers who are actually out there interested in serving the people. And the amazing thing is, you can be those ministers. Each of you, I mean, the, you know, I talk about the church, you know, and its ministers, but Presbyters were the motivating power. The Holy Spirit dwelling in the presbyter was the the power of the early church. What's a presbyter? Elder of a family. It was those ten heads of families who got together with fervent charity and dedication, that pious performance of their duty to their Father in heaven. That made Christianity great. But you can't do that without the Holy Spirit dwelling in each of you. See, that's one of the the misconceptions that Twinge comes up with. And, you know, I, I'm not sitting down and talking with her. So, you know, to be fair, it may be a question of vocabulary. But she kind of blames this, uh, uh, what Twinge and Joan ships seems to have missed is this definition of religion, which we just described. But Twin suggested that cultural trend of rising individualism in U.S. culture has moved people to put self first so that it makes sense that fewer would commit to religion. Well, that's you have to look at the definition of religion 
and the, the, the definition of individualism. Individualism does not promote self first. Individualism promotes voluntary communities, not forced communities. Socialism is one of the most selfish forms of government there is. You know, it's not unselfish to be a socialist. As a matter of fact, that's why you have so many rich people promoting socialism. You know, Bernie Sanders, big promoter of socialism, lives in three homes worth millions of dollars. So much for, you know, that, you know, Mother Teresa, she was believed in individualism, <laughs> but she believed in using that individualism as a power of care for one another. This is the thing about capitalism. Capitalism is just an economic system. You have to bring your own moral values to that system because it doesn't, what socialism pretends to bring moral value with it. That this is for the common good. You know. But individualism allows you to make choices to set down self and voluntarily help one another. I mean, some of the most rugged individuals there are are the people on rescue teams that leave their businesses, leave their homes and go out there to rescue other people. These These people who do that they are almost always rugged individualists that go out and save other people. Just heard about somebody being saved by snowmobilers who went out looking for somebody who was missing and found them and brought them back. These these people who do that, they're rugged individuals in almost every case. I mean, it's it's amazing. You uh, what you if you go out there and interview them, you will find them to be just that. I mean, you'll find a sprinkling of left people. But, you know, a lot of people on the left, they just are more compassionate. The division is not between left and right. You know, the right side is supposed to be more conservative. Uh, and But you'll find a lot of the rescuers are conservatives. But you'll find some that are on the left. But they are what they have in common. See, we're making a division in society along the long lines. A wrong, the lo- wrong, along the wrong lines. The division should be based on morals and virtue. Who is the virtuous leftist and who is the virtuous uh, conservative or right? I don't want to say rightist <laughs> person on the right. Who has virtue and who does not have virtue? Because. A lot of the people on the left, the liberal, that's one of the things they used to call the left is the liberal side. They're for freedom. They're for individual freedom. At least they used to be. Now they want to shut you up and punch a Nazi. But that's really, somebody's hijacked the left by being outspoken and, and angry and everything. That pendulum will swing back and somebody will be hijacking the right. Once the power goes to the right, you will find this group that's going to try to hijack the right. In between is the virtuous individual who cares about his family and the next family as much as he cares about his own. That's that's the righteous. That's Remember, you're supposed to be seeking the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And so that's 
that's where we, it isn't individualism that has brought this back. It's actually, because how in the world is individualism creating a greater collective? Because that's what's happening. That their commitment to religion is now committed to public religion. And they're all out there promoting the government provide more and more benefits. That's collectivism on the right, not individualism. <laughs> so, so uh, twins is wrong in projecting that because she's misidentified, or she, at least she's maybe misusing the words individualism. Selfishism. We could say the rise of selfishism, which, which takes us back to that narcissism. So, anyway, the, the modern church has abandoned the basics of pure religion for a strong delusion that they're saved even though they're actually workers of iniquity while thinking they are following the way and the doctrines of Jesus Christ they have actually abandoned some of the basic teachings of Jesus Christ and followed after Caesar so it is time for them to repent and turn back but anyway we're going to get into the table and who can sit at the table when we return to Keys of the Kingdom after another brief break. We'll be right back. Well, welcome back to Keys of the Kingdom. So, we were talking about uh, the idea of what, what what young people are really fleeing and what are they fleeing to, what are they looking for. And the answer is actually diverse because people are, di- are diverse. There's a lot of different answers to that question. But we've taken a look in any way at the fact that they're not really fleeing pure religion. They're actually uh, fle- fleeing false religion. And uh, pure religion is almost not found anymore <laughs> in America to any great extent. Uh, everybody is dependent upon, mostly upon, what used to be called public religion. And uh, Christians would not join public religion and therefore, they were persecuted because they knew that public religion did not operate by charity. It operated by force, forced contributions to take care of the needy of society. So anyway, eventually, uh, that the unrighteous mammon, this entrusted wealth that is used to provide for the needy of society through forced contribution, that's the unrighteous mammon. Righteous mammon is taking care of the needy of society through entrusted wealth that is provided by faith, open charity. This is what makes the difference between righteous and unrighteous. So that's, and you can be on the left side of that equation or the right side of that equation, but if you're not desiring to take care of one another by free will offerings, but rather by force, then you're in opposition to the ways of God, the ways of Christ, the ways of Moses, and you are you're doomed. You're going to cry out someday and God's not going to hear you and bad things are going to happen. And if you don't believe me, ask Polybius, ask Plutarch, ask Tacitus. They all say the same thing. And they weren't even Christians. Uh, I mean, some of them lived before Christianity was even created. But the reality is that's that's another whole realm of way of thinking that is different than what is commonly being taught or even presented in society today. Certainly not by ship. 
and uh, and by many others from the Huffington Post and some of these other publications. And, but you're not going to find the truth in the churches either. You're actually really only going to find the truth in your heart and whether or not you can hear this. Civilization is headed for a downfall. It is going to decline and fall just like Rome. Rome was falling, but there were actually other things. You know, uh, Will Durant, who wrote uh, probably he's best known for a book that he wrote with his wife. Uh, his wife's name was Ariel, and uh, they uh, they they wrote. Uh, was it uh, Civilization? I was trying to think of exactly what. Uh, the story of civilization, I think, is what was entitled Eleven Volumes, and uh, it was published between 1935 and 1975. So I mean, it's not that old of a book, but and it's there it was a he put a lot of work into it. I don't agree with every single conclusion or every single perception of history, but uh, the same can be true of uh, Thayer's, uh, you know, examination of the Bible and even Thayer's. Later on, he says that many, so many things were discovered after he put together his Thayer's uh, examination of the Bible and, you know, in the words of the Bible, you know, he puts in his definitions. But they found so many more things afterwards. He would have changed a great deal of it, but he got too old to do so. Uh, but the reality is, is that that's part of the process of seeking the truth and seeking righteousness is seeking the truth about what is really said in the text and what was really intended by Christ and the apostles and Moses and Abraham. And that's what we write about all the time. So, but one of the things that Will Durant did say, I remember civilization exists by geological consent, subject to change without notice. And he said this partly because he could look back in history and see how great societies collapsed under geological shifts and geological astronomical, whatever. The, the fact is is that uh, such civilizations do exist by the fact that there is stability on this planet and that stability is not guaranteed. It can change without notice. And for instance, if we were to have another solar minimum which would bring about another ice age, there would be starvation in the world. And who are you going to call? If, if there is global warming or global cooling, uh, who's really going to solve the problem? Who's really going to help you get through? You can see where most people put their faith. They put it in government. Oh, the government's going to solve this. The government's going to do this. And they're looking and praying to the government daily to fix that. Uh, but I kind of like what uh, Ronald Reagan said. <laughs> Keep looking to the government to solve the problem. when Government is the problem. And the reality it is. But people can't see that because they don't see the alternative to government. And actually, I'm not... I, I Really, the alternative is government. It's just a different kind of government. Same as the alternative is religion. It's just a different kind of religion. There's fake religion that is all about what you think. And, uh, you know, accept these doctrines. When Christ was not going around saying, accept these doctrines... He was going around saying, love thy neighbor as thyself. And once you accept that doctrine, it will change what you do. 
It'll change the way you walk. It'll change your conversation with your spouse, with your neighbor, with your community. And if there is a geological withdrawal of consent, (laughs) and there is a sudden change, you and your community will be ready for it because you will have built the trust in one another. You have built in your mind the pattern of caring about one another as much as you care about yourself. So, somebody today was talking about, you know, who was talking about Doomsday and actually thinks that uh, he predicted that uh, Trump, somebody sent me this link, and that Trump was, you know, put into power by God. That he was going to win the election. He was saying this way back before Trump won the election. And then Trump wins the election. And everybody wants to hear more about what he predicts. And and I'm not saying that God is not going to use Trump. I mean, I'm, I'm sure God used Hitler and Mao Zedong. Uh, but God allows you to make choices. Allows Trump to make choices, allows Mao Zedong to make choices, allowed Adolf Hitler to, and Stalin to make choices. And what some men meant to evil, God turns to good. I don't want to compare Trump with those other characters uh, in any way. That's not why I lumped them together. I'm just saying that your salvation is not found in another man. It's found in a way, the way you live. That that way that you live will open up your heart to that spirit of God so that he can write upon your hearts and your mind. If you're going around thinking you're going to figure it all out and you're going to study the Bible and you're going to calculate it and you're going to find the answer because you're so smart, you're not going to find the answer because the answer is a gift. It's going to come to you because God chooses to write on your heart and your mind. Your job is to open up your heart and your mind to Christ. And one of the ways you open up your heart and mind to Christ is to care about others as much as you care about yourself. You can start with your family, certainly. Your daughters and your sons and your cousins and your nephews. But then you must extend that out to your neighbor and your community. You have to care about them as much as you care about yourself. You even have to care about the foreigners in your community. This is what allows for repentance, the changing of the mind. You can't, you cannot repent on your own. You can allow your mind to be changed. If repentance is the changing of the mind, you cannot change your mind. You can allow your mind to be changed by opening up your heart. Opening up your heart is going to include forgiveness. Forgiveness for your neighbor, forgiveness for your government, forgiveness for Donald Trump and Obama and anybody else who happens to be your leader in whatever country you're in. You have to forgive them. And leave judgment to God. What you don't just leave to God is what you do. Because the pious performance, pious meaning your duty to your father, let's make it your father in heaven, The pious performance of your duty to God and your fellow man is religion. So that performance of your duty, fellow man, whether he's your neighbor or a foreigner, is probably the same. Now, the way in which that manifests itself, I mean, obviously you don't give certain things to certain people. 
you have to use discretion and you're going to need the Holy Spirit to guide you, not your own vanity, not your own selfishness, not your own fleshy nature. You've got to let God show you the way how in that you can perform that pious duty. Exodus 12:41 says, uh, or let's let's read down Exodus uh, 12:45 first. A foreigner and a hired servant shall not eat thereof. So now what does that mean? Cuz I just said you had to care about the foreigner in your midst. You know, as much as you care about your neighbor. But he just said here in Exodus that you were to exclude the foreigner from eating thereof. Eating thereof of what? Well, now we'll go up to Exodus 12.41. And it came to pass at the end of 430 years, even the selfsame day, it came to pass that all the hosts of the Lord went out from the land of Egypt. As they were in the bondage of Egypt, they had been plagues, they had learned to take care of one another during the plagues, and their neighbor, they shared with their neighbor in order to help their neighbor. They had some insight from Moses as to prepare for the plagues and and to get through them, but it required that they share because there was a shortage of everything when there was all these different things that were happening. In order to get through, they had to care about one another and help one another. Philos tells us a little bit more about that. And again, I'm going to throw it out here real quick. According to Cecil B. DeMille, the question that was being decided through the adventures of Moses was, are men the property of the state or are they free souls under God? Well, today, men are mostly the property of the state. They have been made merchandise through their covetous practices. They're now surety for debt, which is increasing. Everybody is so relieved when they raise the debt ceiling, which is actually putting you more and more into bondage and your children after you. But anyway, it is a night to be much observed, it says in verse 42, unto the Lord for bringing them out of the land of Egypt, the land of bondage. Yes, Egypt means bondage. This is that night of the Lord to be observed of all the children of Israel in their generations. And the Lord said unto Moses and Aaron, This is the ordinance of the Passover. They shall no stranger eat thereof. But every man's servant that is bought for money when thou hast circumcised him, then shall he eat thereof. A foreigner and a hired servant shall not eat thereof. So what is he talking about? In one house shall it be eaten. He's talking about the Passover feast. But he's also talking about a metaphor here. You know, you weren't supposed to break the bones and all the stuff. We're also talking about circumcision of the heart, not circumcision of the flesh and spirit and truth. Moses said a lot of things in metaphors. It doesn't mean that there wasn't the spiritual message in those metaphors. But the Pharisees were the kind of people to cling to the metaphor and turn it into a ritual observation, a religious ritual uh, rite, rather than in the actual meaning of that. All the congregation of Israel shall keep it. This sharing 
which is what the Passover meal was a representative sharing. It isn't the individual feast. It's the day-to-day walk. It is the day-to-day circumcision of the heart that Moses was trying to talk to the people about. And yeah, he why didn't he make it clear? Because if he made it too clear, the book would have never survived. He had to leave room for people to misinterpret it because the Spirit will tell you what is true. And that's where you have to go. Now that word foreign there, uh, which is, uh, let's see, what, Tav, Vav, Shem, Be'it is the letters there. And Be'it has to do with household. Uh, Tav has to do with faith. So, and the Vav is a, can be a connecting or separating letter. So, it is talking about those separated from the faith. Those not living by faith, hope, and charity. They should not eat of this meal of faith, hope, and charity. That's what they're saying. They're, they're not talking about one particular Passover dinner. They're talking about a precept. So those people who will not sit down together to care for one another, that is evidence that they're foreigners. That they don't want to live. They don't have the circumcision of the heart. They don't want to live by faith, hope, and charity. And you should not feed them. You should not encourage such sloth in the ways of God. They are foreigners. I mean, you take that word foreigner... There's, the word foreigner in the King James only shows up twice. And the two times it shows up, it's actually from two different words. One time it's from this word. That has to do with the Tav, Shem, separation of faith. People not of faith. They're foreigners. And not of faith doesn't mean that they're not Methodists or Jehovah Witnesses or Lutherans or Episcopalians. It means... They don't want to live by faith, hope, and charity. It doesn't make any difference if they're on the left or the right. It has to do whether or not they are on the side of righteousness. And righteousness means they want to live by faith, hope, and charity. Uh, they may be in the system, but they don't want to take the benefits. They may pay into the system, but they don't want, they want to not only not take the benefits, they want to become a benefit to others. That's living by faith, the faith in Christ, in the way of Christ. The other word they talked about was hired uh, servant. And, uh, well, this, that word foreigner, by the way, I was saying that it's translated other ways. It's also translated nine times sojourner. Three times stranger. Four, uh, yeah, 14 times. Is that right? Uh, no, no. One time foreigner. Uh, altogether it appears 14 times in the Bible. I had to look that up real quick here. <laughs> so, <laughs> cause I couldn't remember. But, uh, yeah, but it means, Someone who's a stranger, stranger to, why are they a stranger to us? Is it because they don't live by faith, hope, and charity? That they have needs. They may be hungry, but they don't live by faith, hope, and charity. They don't even seem to want to live by faith, hope, and charity. I mean, obviously you find somebody in a ditch, you can help them out, but then if you find out they don't want to live by faith, hope, and charity, 
you need to stop feeding them. And, and the word itself, it comes from a word that has to do with to dwell. Like I said, biet, biet shem. And actually, it's biet shem yad. And again, biet shem yad, yad is the divine spark. Biet is, your household is a place of the divine spark. And you'll find lots of people with kingdom tracks in their life. They may not be quite ready to live by faith, hope, and charity, but they have they have some of those kingdom tracks in their life. They haven't really added real taw faith to that their dwelling. And so, where you draw the line that you're going to need the Holy Spirit to do that. So anyway, at least I thought I would put that much out there. But uh, the uh, this other word, it's a it's a hired servant. It's a servant. It's it's somebody. It's a, they're 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 people that you know they may be in your community, but they're not really a part of what you're doing. They're still kind of in. So they have these two. I don't know if that's actually two different kinds of people, or they're modifying the word foreigner with this word hired servant. It's a person without faith who's there for whatever reason. But he's not really there for the purposes of seeking the kingdom of God and his righteousness. So again, the point is that those people should not be eating of the table of the Lord. And you, it will take some spiritual discretion on your part. Some of the other places that you find the same word sojourner, like I said, is, I mean, there's, like I say, 14 different places. Leviticus 22.10, uh, there shall no stranger eat of the holy things, a sojourner. Of the priests or a hired servant shall not eat of the holy things. So they're talking about men who are not of faith. Well, you can actually find a lot of pastors who are not of faith. And they should not eat of the holy things. So, you know, we have charity in our local communities and we will share things in our local communities. But you need to keep that in mind that uh, especially when there's shortages... You know, if everybody in your church is going to the government, but you're going out and helping people who are also going to the government and not living by faith, well, you have to be careful on how you do that. You can do it as a witness, but you have to be doing it as a witness in hopes of drawing them into the walk that Christ told us all to walk and the way that Christ told us to go. In Leviticus 25, 47, we see the word sojourner, or stranger, and the word, they have a different word for sojourner there, but the word stranger is that word that we we looked at uh, before. And so this is the complexities of these translations. If they're not going to translate one word consistently, then they end up having to translate it different ways when they find that word there in another another form. But it, and if you go back to verse 46, and ye take them as an inheritance of your children after you, to inherit them for a possession. They shall be your bondsmen forever, but over your brethren, the children of Israel, ye shall not rule one over another with rigor. So this has to do, again, remember, Moses was allowing the people to do some things because of the hardness of their hearts. He wasn't necessarily promoting these things, but he was putting restrictions on them that they could not, you know, okay, you guys insist upon divorce, but you're not going to just do it this way. I mean, even the eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth 
or ceiling limits to keep you from going, you know, and taking two eyes because, you know, where you're taking vengeance. Vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. He was just trying to create a legal system where there was recompense in as fair a way as possible. But no matter how many rules you make, it will not be fair if fairness is not written in your hearts. So this, again, is why you have to let God write upon your hearts and upon your mind. A lot of things I'm mentioning to you are showing you that you aren't really walking in the way. And it will take the heart of God and the Spirit of God writing upon your heart in order for your mind to change so you can see the truth and walk in the ways of truth. So anyway, we also see the same word used in Psalms 39.12 here. My prayer, O Lord, and give ear unto my cry. Hold not thy peace at my tears, for I am a stranger with thee and a sojourner, foreigner, as all my fathers were. In other words, you need to realize that you are in need of repentance. I'm not trying to pick on you. I I just want you to realize that you need to go a different way. I don't want you to feel comfortable in the way you've been going. And one of the ways to change is to join the network, the living network, not just the email network. Find people as close to you as possible and start caring about them as much as you care about yourself. The other word for, we're not going to be able to get to it. We'll get to it uh, the next show this afternoon. Uh, but it's a completely different word and it shows up at least in Deuteronomy 15.3 as foreigner, but it's translated a lot of different ways. But join the network. Go to PreparingYou or HisHolyChurch.org. Join the network. Find other people. Start letting God write upon your heart and upon your mind. Till then, peace on your house and may God be with you. God bless. You have been listening to The Keys of the Kingdom with Brother Gregory of His Holy Church. For more information on the educational ministry provided by His Holy Church and Brother Gregory, including services, counseling, lectures, books, and other audio materials, please write to His Church at Summer Lake, Box 10, Summer Lake, Oregon, 97640. You can also find us on the web at www.hisholychurch.net.